congregation, I would like to consider with you the Heidelberg Catechism this morning. Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 31, questions 83 through 85. It's about the keys of the kingdom and about preaching and censure. Question 83. What are the keys of the kingdom of heaven? Answer the preaching of the Holy Gospel and the Christian discipline or excommunication out of the Christian church. By these two, the kingdom of heaven is opened to believers and shut against unbelievers. How is the kingdom of heaven opened and shut by the preaching of the Holy Gospel? Answer thus, when, according to the command of Christ, it is declared and publicly testified to all and every believer that whenever they receive the, God, the promise of the gospel by a true faith, all their sins are really forgiven them of God for the sake of Christ's merits. And on the contrary, when it is declared and testified to all unbelievers and such as do not sincerely repent, that they stand exposed to the wrath of God and eternal condemnation so long as they are unconverted according to which testimony of the gospel, God will judge them both in this and in the life to come. 85. How is the kingdom of heaven shut and opened by Christian discipline? Thus, when according to the command of Christ, those who under the name of Christians maintain doctrines and practices inconsistent therewith, and will not, after having been often broadly admonished, renounce their errors and wicked course of life, are complained of to the church or to those who are thereunto appointed by the church. And if they despise their admonition, are by them forbidden the use of the sacraments, whereby they are excluded from the Christian church, and by God himself from the kingdom of Christ. And when they promise and show real amendment, are again received as members of Christ and his church. So far, the keys of the kingdom with the help of God, of the Lord, two thoughts. The key of preaching the Bible and secondly, the key of church discipline. The keys of the kingdom, in the first place, the key of preaching the Bible, and secondly, the key of church discipline. Congregation, young people, what is so important about the preaching? Why is the preaching so central in our services, why an hour-long monologue 
of a pastor preaching the word it is so one-sided, preaching for an hour. And the congregation has to only listen. They can sing a few psalms and pray along, but for the rest they are quiet. Why not more interaction? We live in the modern world, right? And people like questions and answers. Why not more openness in the spa to say, any questions? What do you say? Why not more life in the church and life in the preaching? Well, that has a reason. But let me first show from the Bible how important the preaching is. I think the preaching is the most important part of the service, isn't it? The Apostle Paul writes to Timothy, Preach the word. Be instant in season, out of season. Reproof, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering, patience, and doctrine. And I read in Acts 16, what Luke says, now when they had gone throughout Phrygia and the region of Galatia and were forbidden of the Holy Ghost to preach the word in Asia. So the preaching is often mentioned, right? The Apostle Peter preached on the day of Pentecost and Stephen preached to the Jewish leaders. Preaching is very central. And the reason why we don't discuss things in the sermon is because God has nothing to discuss with you. The Lord has a message, and that's it. And that message is the message of the law and the gospel, of enemy Christ, of hell and heaven, of the way of salvation. But the Lord has nothing to discuss. It is his word. Take it or leave it. No, take it. Right? It's the word of God. It comes so one-sided. It's the truth. So the truth does not need to be discussed. It's, it's, it's the Bible. And the preacher is supposed to let the message of the Bible come through and not adding, any, adding anything or take anything out of it. Faith is by discussing. Faith is by hearing. So, yes, we hope that people respond to that in adoration and in quiet prayer and in praise. But, you know, the most important thing is that the Lord speaks and that we must hear. So, a sermon is not only an explanation, it's not only giving information, it's not only preaching good tidings, not only preaching Christ and the way of salvation. Preaching is not only preaching the marks of grace, but preaching is also an official declaration, a public testifying. Do you see that? How is the kingdom of heaven opened and shut by the preaching of the Holy Gospel? When according to the command of Christ, it is declared, declared, and publicly testified to all and every believer. So it is my responsibility to declare, to pronounce 
to testify, to say, well, to you. Or woe to you. It's the preacher, the woe and the well. And we have to publicly announce that and declare it. You are a child of the Lord. You are. Or you are not. You are exposed to the wrath of God. Or you are forgiven. So we need to announce that. Not only hope for that and say, congregation, I hope you may receive the knowledge of the forgiveness of sins, or you may experience the knowledge of your misery, but we must preach that you are under wrath, or that you have been forgiven. So, as you heard, two types of declarations to believers and unbelievers. The kingdom of heaven is open to believers and shut against unbelievers. The believers being God's elect. The believers, them, they have received God's grace and have received faith in their heart. And unbelievers is the rest. In the church, outside the church, in other continents, in other religions, all other people. Quite something. So the sermon is a public declaration, a verdict. Let's compare it, for example, to a wedding. After the couple has exchanged vows, I say, I pronounce you husband and wife. So I pronounce it officially, publicly. You are. You are not, I hope you feel it, not I hope you may experience it, but you are. Or like when someone has passed away, a doctor does the examination and says, this person has passed away. So he pronounces someone to be dead. You know, that is quite serious, right? Preaching is not trying to entertain people, but it's using the keys of the kingdom, as we have read in Matthew. And also in Matthew 16, you read about it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt lose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So if someone has been pronounced forgiven, that has meaning in heaven, and if someone is pronounced dead, spiritually dead, that means that according to that same judgment, people will experience hell. So let us first look at the opening of the door in the preaching believers. All and every believer, whenever they receive the promise of the gospel by a true faith. Do you see that? Again. Declared and publicly testified to all and every believer that whenever they receive the promise of the gospel by a true faith.
Now, what does the word receive mean here? Whenever they receive the promise of the gospel, the word receive has at least two meanings, right? I, I don't want to make it too difficult, but I think this is easy enough. Receiving Christ is not the same as receiving faith. Right? Receiving Christ, that is because Christ is the gift of God. But receiving him in faith is something else. In receiving Christ, the sinner is passive. But by receiving him in faith, the, 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 the sinner is actively involved. He receives it. So God's people receive God's grace. It is God-given grace, unconditional grace. And they are passive in that. They have no say in when they will be stopped and when they receive God's grace and when they're converted. But then because of that grace, they begin themselves, I said by God's grace, they receive themselves the Lord Jesus and they welcome him. Not by nature, by God's grace, they welcome him. They let him in. By God's grace, they let him in. And that's what's meant here. Right? That whenever they let him in, when they receive him, when they, in a holy way, not in the Armenian way, accept him, when they receive the promise of the gospel by a true faith. Because believing is receiving him instead of rejecting him. All the unbelievers reject him and have no use for him and have no desire for him, no true desire. But God's children have a true desire for him and they receive him in a true saving faith. So receiving is an activity of the soul. The soul receives by true faith, not a fake faith, not a phony faith, not an artificial faith, but they wholeheartedly receive the promise of the gospel. The promise of the gospel is what? The promise is the offer of free and sovereign grace. It is a touching of the hem of that garment, right? That, that, that is the true receiving. That is that looking upon that serpent in the wilderness, lifted up, to look upon him. That, that's the faith. That same faith is that desiring of the lamb that came to seek and save the lost ones. It is a treasuring of the Lord Jesus Christ. He that believeth on the Son has everlasting life. So the crucial matter is if we believe in him. I mean, believe in the deepest, truest, biblical sense. Not sacraments, not good works, no warm feelings, no encouragements, although they're dear, are enough 
we need that simple and true believing. Simple. It is as simple as a blind man can find his mouth. It is as simple as a little baby drinks. You don't need to teach the baby that. It is so simple that an explanation of it might make it look difficult. Oh, that believing is the work of the Holy Spirit, right? And through the Holy Spirit, it is something that comes and that is easy. Is it difficult to trust your father? Is trusting something you have to do your best for? Do we try to love our babies? Is it hard? And you know, believing is even more simple. It is a sitting down. It is doing nothing. Him that worketh not, but believeth in him that justifieth the ungodly. You know, one says, Minister, I don't dare. You don't what? You don't, I don't dare to believe. Well, that sounds very humble. And I can relate to that. It sounds very careful. I understand that. But not daring to believe is meaning, means, means I don't dare to trust Jesus. Right? I don't dare to trust his word. I don't dare to build upon that foundation. I'm afraid of the Savior. I fear. I'm afraid of myself. Well, that you're afraid of yourself, right. Because you can deceive yourself, right? You absolutely can, and many do. But the Lord is not deceiving you. His word is not deceiving you. And the promise of the gospel is true. He came to seek and to save them that are lost. So let us not forget about that not daring to believe the gospel is also not daring to trust the Savior. And you do not need extra permission either. Some people, they say, I hear the gospel. I hear the preaching of the gospel. I hear the, the, the invitation. But I'm waiting for something extra that the Lord gives me a push. Now it's your turn. But you don't have to wait for that for the time. Believing is not waiting until the Lord pushes you. Believing is to come now without money and without price. 
All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. So some say, I, instead of believing, I read the Bible, and I pray, and I use the means, and I read good books. And many deceive themselves by saying, I'm using the means, it's all I can do. And then, then hope for the best. But you know that, it's, that it doesn't go that way. Of course, I encourage you to use the means. And of course, the Lord could use them. But many die that way without grace. And they've their whole life used the means. And their whole life been in church. And their whole life prayed about it. And then they don't get it. The Lord has not said use the means, only. But the Lord says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, receiving him in a true faith. Some say, I would love to feel more first and to be terrified first. But we should also be fearful of unbelief, right? But how do we know that we are welcome to believe? That we may come now, today? Read the Bible. The word of the living God says so. So what's most crucial, the most crucial question is, do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you stopped working yourself? Have you given up? Have you come to your wit's end? Have you just discovered that from your side it is absolutely impossible? Have you despaired of all possibilities on your side? And have you heard that invitation? Come unto me, ye that are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Now, some of you are waiting. And you say, I, I wait. I wait with what? Waiting with believing? I don't recommend that. Waiting with, belie- with believing is, is a misinterpretation of the word waiting in the Bible. But waiting in the Bible, like Psalm 130 is a believing in the Savior, a waiting on him, a knowing that he is there, a knowledge that he is certain that he does not lie, and say, Lord, I wait for thee, because I know thou wilt come. That's faith. Having the highest expectations of the Lord. So the other side of the story is the pronunciation, the, the pronouncing someone dead, right? That's also a declaration. Second part. And on the contrary, when it is declared and testified to all unbelievers, and such as do not sincerely repent and deceive themselves, they repent, they think they repent, but they don't. 
that they stand exposed to the wrath of God and eternal condemnation so long as they are unconverted. So that's also biblical, right? For as many as are under the works of the law, are under the curse, are under the curse. As it's written, cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which have written in the book of the law to do them. So, cursed is everyone that does not continue in all those things. If any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema, maranatha, 1 Corinthians 16, and John 3, verse 19 and 30. And this is the condemnation, that light is come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds are evil. He that believeth on the Son is everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abided on him. Abided on him. You know, I see that wrath hang over the head of sinners. It, it abides on them. And I pronounce them to be unconverted. I pronounce that they stand exposed to the wrath of God yet, and that they're under the curse of the Lord. You know what will that be? Do you realize what hell is about? It means eternal condemnation. It means that constant frown of God upon you. It means no friendly word from the Lord's mouth, ever. It means wishing to die, you cannot. Having no painkillers. Nothing to numb you. And it will be much worse than whatever suffering you have ever experienced before. What a sadness now. What a loneliness for the desperation. Do you see in the Psalter book on the next page, footnote 6, read that please with me on page 65, the first column at the bottom, 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 through 9, and to you who are troubled, rest with us, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. So they do not know God and they do not obey the gospel. And that's that we felt in heaven. In, in hell, that experiencing that I have not known the Lord, not acknowledged them, rejected them, and I have not obeyed the gospel. And that's the main reason why people go to hell for. 
that they have not obeyed the gospel. Do you believe that? Are you defending yourself? Do you have something to say to the Lord that you don't agree with? But 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 through 9. And yet, although sinners are under the wrath of God, there is no condemnation yet. The Lord is still waiting. He's a Savior. There's some time left. We don't know how much time is left. But I see at the end of question 84, so long as they are unconverted, according to which testimony of the gospel, God will judge them both in this and in the life to come. So, so long as they are unconverted, so there's still time left. And I plead with you, use that time. And not only use the means, not only pray for grace, but make a point of this and say, Lord, I need, I need to believe in thee. I need to believe in thee. Make, make a point of think about that and lay it before the Lord. Lord, I need to truly believe in thee. And of course, you may ask for that faith as long as you realize that asking for it is not enough. Asking for it doesn't help you. You must believe. And that's a work of the Holy Spirit. Right. But through the Holy Spirit, sinners must believe in him and receive him and welcome him. See how crucial it is? So there are two types of people in church today. Believers and unbelievers. To the believers, I say, it's well with you. It's well with you. Don't worry. It's well with you. Your sins have all been forgiven by the merits of the Lord Jesus Christ. You don't need to worry. If you have that true faith, it's well for time and eternity. But if you don't, Oh, congregation, you have a costly, precious soul for eternity. Don't do that to yourself. Don't do that to God. Don't do that to the church. But seek your salvation only in Him, in the Savior. See, that is using the keys of the kingdom. So preaching is quite serious. When people leave the church, they should know where they stand, in or out. And the second key is the key of church discipline. Congregation, the second part of Lord's Day 31 deals with church discipline, not with family discipline, not with discipline in the state or in the school, but in the church. And it's important to the church. It is important, therefore, to be part of a church. Because if, you have, if you're not a part of the church, there is no church discipline over you. So, 
the Bible speaks about disciplining members of the congregation. Being on your own is not being committed to a church body, and it deprives you of the blessings of the church and also the blessing of church discipline. But how can we suffer from missing church discipline? Is it not better to be on your own and not to be bothered by other people? Is it not easier to be on your own and having no responsibility to deal with the sins of others? No, that's not better. Church discipline is healthy, and we need it. A country without disciplining a court system or a school, a school without rules is doomed to be chaotic, and nobody benefits from it. And the Lord wants sinners to be united in the church, to be united. As a church, we need help and assistance to comfort and encourage those who fell in sin. So church discipline is not a punishment. It is not meant to get even, to do justice. The government is supposed to do that. A father in a family is called to be wise and firm and a loving father. And in church discipline, if it should be administered in a biblical way, helps the church and the church community and helps its members. Before we deal with the way to administer the disciplining, let's first talk about the purpose. The purpose of church discipline. You know, suppose that in a church a certain sin runs rampant and the entire town talks about it and criticizes the church. It's the talk of the day in, 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 in town when people tolerate abuse and swipe things on the carpet. What is that doing to the glory of God? You know, when abuse has been reported and not dealt with, that is detrimental to the church and for the glory of God. It should be dealt with. And it, it can be to God's glory if things are forgotten and ignored. It must be dealt with. And in other words, it's also the, it's a, it's a, it's a task of the church to, to discipline and not to create a breeding ground for sin and to, to tolerate it. But secondly, church discipline is necessary to make clear that the entire congregation, to the entire congregation, that sin is unacceptable. So the whole congregation needs to know they are doing something about it. They deal with it. They don't ignore it. And that's, that, that's, that's good because otherwise sin becomes contagious and, go, and this goes as a wildfire through the congregation. So even God's children need a firm hand and we all need to know the church will deal with public sins. Church discipline is a deterrent. It's meant to restrain sin. 
And in the third place, church discipline does not only help the church to live a holy life, it's not only for their own welfare, but it also means that it helps with evangelization. Hopefully it attracts people and the church deals with sin. And hopefully people respect it. And for that reason, don't criticize it. But in the fourth place, church discipline is not meant to ruin people, not to harm their reputation, not to hurt them, not to get rid of them, but to help them. To help them to fight the good fight to help them walk in, in the Lord's ways. And church discipline is not handing out a ticket, it's not paying a fine, it's not going to jail, it is medication. So let me just give you a few texts from the Bible about it. Matthew 18, Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone, if he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. But if thou, if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if he neglects the church, let him be unto thee as a heathen man and a publican. I hope to come back to that. 1 Corinthians 5, it is reported among you commonly that there is fornication among you, and such fornication as is not so much as named among the Gentiles, that one should have his father's wife, his stepmother, and ye are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he that has done this deed might be taken away from among you to deliver such a one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the Spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. I really like Galatians 6 verse 1. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering yourself, lest thou also may be, may be tempted. Let me read that verse again. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, fell fault of sin, ye which are spiritual, are you? Restore such a one. Help them in the spirit of meekness, considering yourself, who are you? Lest thou so be tempted, or you think that can't happen to you. Or 2 Thessalonians 3, But ye brethren, be not weary in well-doing, and if any man obey not our word by this epistle, know that man, and have no company with him, that he may be ashamed. Yet count him not as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. See that? So, 
Don't deal with them as enemies if people have fallen into sin. 1 Timothy 5, them that sin rebuke before all, that others also may fear. So let's talk about the attitude on how to discipline people. And then we first have to deal with the question, who is disciplining? The pastor? The consistory? The elders in particular? Well, that's not that it starts. It starts with the members. The members discipline, begin to discipline procedure, according to Matthew 18. According to that chapter, individual members are the first ones addressing the issue. So someone has witnessed the sin you need to repent of, and he wants to talk to you. And the attitude should be kind and humble. And I've heard and I feel sad about this. They're not condemning and coming down hard on someone. No, no, no. Kind, friendly, coming alongside, meaning well, not condemning, but in a kind way asking if those things are true. Expressing your grief, not being hostile and harsh and enemy not with anger and disgust, but in such a way that the other feels love and concern. I know Hebrews 12 writes about fathers disciplining and God's disciplining, but they learn from Hebrews 12 as well. And ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children, my son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. So it's, it's love. It's in a loving way, members should deal with members. I'm talking about secret sins. And not only friendly, also humbly. The Bible says, he that thinketh he standeth, take heed lest he fall. So the other should not have a reason to think that you feel better. We should not approach sinners in a condescending way. You can be friendly and at the same time proud, right? But whoever we have, however we have no reason to feel better. We may do better, but we aren't. And it would be wonderful if the person you must approach would feel that humility. It could be helpful to confess that sin, that you have struggled yourself with, so the other could also feel the empathy. So that is what we already read in Galatians 6, verse 1, right? Brethren, if a man be overtaken a fault, gives us her to restore such a one in the spirit of meekness considering thyself. And Ephesians 4, And be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. So do you know something yourself about forgiveness? That you have been forgiven? 
that makes all the difference, right? If you have been forgiven, not only by people, but also by the Lord, it makes it easier to forgive yourself. And if you have a hard time forgiving, the background of it might be that you don't understand forgiveness yet. Which is not the same thing as trusting, by the way. It's interesting that the three parables about the lost sheep, the lost penny, and the prodigal son, all three end with, you know, all three of those parables about the lost sheep, lost coin, lost son, end with a party, with a feast. That's a strong message, isn't it? You know, we need to be able to forgive and hopefully we do not resemble the older son in the parable of the prodigal son. He, he couldn't come along. He could not forgive his younger brother. He had such deep feelings, hard feelings. I heard of a church... It's kind of new to me, I didn't know that. I heard of a church that if someone has done confession of guilt, they have a dinner afterwards. A dinner. Because it makes the whole congregation happy. Something? What do you feel about that? Someone has done confession of guilt. To rejoice as a congregation. He was dead. He's alive. He has confessed. He has confessed. And it's, it's, it's restored now, at least in the outward sense. See? It's remarkable that that's very close to Matthew 18. So let me read the shortest of those parables. I did that woman having ten pieces of silver, if she lose one piece, does not light a candle and sweep the house and seek diligently till she finds it. And when she's found it, she calls her friends and her neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the piece which, was, which I lost. Likewise, I say unto you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repenteth. And also consider 1 Thessalonians 5.14. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly, comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak, be patient towards all men. What do you think about the Lord Jesus himself, how he dealt with the apostle Peter? So he, he, he made an oath. I don't know the man. He denied the Lord Jesus Christ for such an heinous sin. And then yet the Lord Jesus dealt with him so gently, right? Love is on me. Love is on me. Are you sure love is on me? See? So we need to be kind and humble and biblical. Also biblical. Before you go visit a person because of a secret sin, you better study the Bible 
and be prepared to show from the Bible why this sin is a sin against God. And if you have difficulties proving from the Bible why this sin is a sin, you better wait and study it a little further. But then the steps of the church is by now probably clear. So an individual deals with a secret sin. If the person says it's not your business, just mind your own business, then you have to take someone else along or two, and you have to deal with it with a few more people. And if he or she doesn't listen yet, you have to deal with the church. And the church can eventually excommunicate the person. That is too much matter for one sermon. You may want to uh, read about that in the back of the Psalter book, in the church order, in Article 71 and following, or study the book of Reverend Gear about how to deal with that. But it's mainly in Sigurdsson's first individual, then a few friends, then the church, and the church deals with the rest. If it is a secret sin or a public sin, if it is uh, a sin of weakness, a sin of rebellion, and that, that's, that's something else. But James 5, brethren, if any of you do err from the truth, and one convert him, let him know that he which converted the sinner from the error of his way shall save his soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sins. So if someone is confessing his guilt, does that need to be sincere? Yeah, of course. So how, how do you know if it's sincere? You have no way of knowing. You don't know. So what do you do then? You go by what they say. They say, I feel sorry. You have to abide with that what he or she has said. And if he trespass against thee seven times in the day, and seven times in the day he turned again to you, saying, I repent, thou shalt forgive him. Because he said seven times, you would say, I don't believe it anymore. But he says so, so you have to forgive me as he says so. So, what if someone wants to confess his or her guilt? Is it then over? Or could you still feel the grudge and just be cautious? You know, I found a text in the Bible so beautiful, I just almost cried. Sufficient to such a man is this punishment which was afflicted of many. So let me pause here. So someone was in trouble because of a sin and the whole congregation was talking about it eventually and shunned the person and that was the punishment. 
sufficient to such men is this punishment which was inflicted on many, so that contrarywise ye ought rather to forgive him and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one should be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow. So, yes, it's over. And no additional punishment is needed. That person was punished enough. Sufficient to such a man is this punishment, which was inflicted of many. So that contrarywise, it's the other way, contrarywise, ye ought ready to forgive, to get over it, and comfort him, man. Comfort him. Comfort her who did confession of guilt. Yes, comfort him. Lest perhaps such one should need to swallow up with overmuch sorrow. That's not what we need. So here you see, that was, by the way, 2 Corinthians 2, 6 and 7. Here you see who the Lord is, right? The Lord does not want to make it hard. He wants honesty, but also forgiveness. And even if you did not fall into such sins, and if you did not harden your heart, maybe you have never been in the center, you still deal with the same God. There is forgiveness with him. Congregation, the keys of the kingdom, right? So when you're leaving this church, what do you say? How do you feel? Does the wrath of God still abide on you? Do we need to officially declare to you that you're exposed to the wrath of God? Or do you belong to the true believers? And you may go home and say, I can't deny that he's my life. I'm in the midst of death. But that Lord Jesus Christ, yes, Lord, thou knowest all things. Thou knowest that I love thee. Amen.